Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. start with a phone call I got this afternoon from a producer at the CBC uh, on CBC radio that apparently when I was on the radio on Sunday morning that uh, several uh, people called in uh, with questions so an eight-year-old girl called uh, Manjushri called um, and uh, Buddha of wisdom excellence and like a couple others they couldn't pronounce and so Anyway, so apparently uh, some of the characters in the Lotus Sutra called on Sunday uh, to ask questions on the radio. And I guess it just went to voicemail and the producer came in today and got them and called me and told me. This. So whoever you are, I think it's really fun. And uh, um, I got a real kick out of it. So. It's someone in this room. <laughs> I have some guesses. It was a female voice. <laughs> Whoever you are, it's really good. <clears throat> so we've been studying the Lotus Sutra, I don't know for how long now, and uh, maybe we're just past the halfway mark. So the idea is we're going to be done by July the 12th, and uh, the city will be filled with floating stupas and uh, raining flowers and uh, people dancing. Um, this is one of the great themes about the sutra is that as people start to wake up, they start dancing, which is such a pleasure, especially those of you who have a Buddhist background. You know, Buddhists can look so solemn, you know, you don't associate them with dancing so much. So it's nice to be part of the lineage of Lotus Sutra dancing Buddhists. Um, so uh, last week, I'm not going to, you know, review the whole the whole week last week. But last week we looked at half of the chapter um, of Devadatta, and um, we explored uh, this theme of who can wake up, and that the Buddha realizes that, or the Buddha explains that the person who helped him wake up was Devadatta, and Devadatta, as we learned last week, uh, was the Buddha's nemesis. And the kind of theme that this is starting to draw out is that uh, your nemesis can help you wake up. Actually, your nemesis is responsible for your awakening. 
And that the nemesis in this story is somebody who did the two worst things you can possibly do. Uh, the first is to try and kill a Buddha, which he tried several times. Uh, the other thing Devadatta did in his history was he tried several times to break up the Sangha. So it said that you know these are like the two worst crimes. On the one hand, trying to kill a Buddha, and on the other hand, doing something to intentionally split up a community. Um, and this is also what wakes up the Buddha. So it's a nice story within a story in the way it's presented. And um, it kind of keeps this theme going of uh, interbeing and of something more than equality. You know, we always talk about equality in our culture. Um, but this is saying that, you know, you're more than just equal to one another. You're really special. And those of you who studied Zen, you know, you always learn how you're really ordinary. But in the Lotus Sutra, you're not. You're, 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 you're not equal. You're so unique, so different, so singular, and so special. And this is kind of a nice thing, you know, especially if you've, you know, gone through two months of rain this spring, you know, just to feel that you, you're special. Um, and the other theme that this really uh, brings to surface is also that um, everybody can uh, wake up, that everybody is a Buddha. And that Devadatta, who is the person you think could not possibly be a Buddha, he's so shabby as a character, actually um, can be a Buddha. And how does he become a Buddha? The same way you become a Buddha is that you recognize that somebody else can be a Buddha. So this is this really interesting theme that what is a Buddha? A Buddha is not somebody who achieves enlightenment. A Buddha is someone who recognizes that somebody else is a Buddha. And this is this theme back from the second chapter, which is that only a Buddha and a Buddha can realize the Lotus Sutra. It's kind of a beautiful theme. Can you really feel that? You know, instead of you trying to become a Buddha, all you have to do is be able to start to see the Buddha in your nemesis. Well, start with a neutral person. <laughs> and then eventually work your way um, to politicians and family members and eventually to your enemy. To your enemy. Um, and the other thing the Buddha is, is teaching here, or the Lotus Sutra, rather, is teaching here, because the Buddha doesn't really speak much, um, is that... Um, you know, I mean, I think one of the core teachings, really, that you can narrow all the Dharma down to is that, you know, there is no such thing, really, as an atom. There is no such thing as some particle that everything gets reduced to. That the world is infinitely indivisible. And that when you break things apart, you keep finding more and more matrices. Um, you don't end up finding some center or something eternal. Um, and... A lot of people interpret this as you break things apart and you find shunya, or emptiness. But again, this word shunya means to swell. So when you break things apart, what you find is swollenness. You don't find nothing, as so many people think. Nothing is not something that you can have. So that, that's not something that's findable anyways. It would be nice if you could find nothing and have that but then that would just be an inverse of the same theory that gets you into trouble, making you feel like you're an atomized, separate individual. Um, 
So the Buddha seems to say that under analysis, you know, everything breaks down, and underneath, underneath is more underneath. And if you go all the way down, it splits apart into butterflies and gardens and fast food and <laughs> chainsaws. So, now we get to the story of the dragon princess. Um, so, uh, basically, to remind you of what's happening, every time the Lotus Sutra is preached, a stupa comes out of the ground and floats up in the sky. And I think we spent a couple weeks exploring that, that idea of this kind of funerary structure just hovering over everything you do, whenever you even so much as think of the Lotus Sutra. And I don't know if you can see it, but it's here now. When we're here, there's also this funeral going on uh, right above us at the same time. And um, inside that funeral is all of time and space. Everyone you've ever known, everything you've ever been, anyone you could have done. Um, You've been everybody that you love, and you've been everybody that you uh, dislike. And they're all in the stupa whenever you think of the Lotus Sutra hovering right over. But it's hard to see, because it can only be seen uh, with your superpower. And your superpower is recognizing someone else as a Buddha. So as soon as you recognize someone else as a Buddha, a stupa appears with all the Buddhas in it. Can you imagine this? No. In the center center of the stupa, um, there is the Buddha of Abundant Treasures, and Shakyamuni, and they're sitting side by side. Do you remember this? uh, He asked Shakyamuni to sit beside him. So Abundant Treasures and the Buddha are sitting side by side. And next to Abundant Treasures, he has an attendant. Because remember, every Buddha always has a Bodhisattva. Are you all here for that? So whenever you have a Buddha, it's somebody who is awake. But they sometimes start to think that they're they're awake. So they need a bubi or a grandmother to always be beside them to remind them to have compassion. So every Buddha always has a bodhisattva beside him or her. Him, mostly. Um, We'll get to that. Um, So then, they think, you know, the party's over, everybody stops dancing, they've been floating around for a while. And then Shakyamuni, you know, basically saying, can we go home now? And then Shakyamuni Buddha speaks up and says, uh, don't go home now, because the bodhisattva Manjushri Somebody who you would really like to talk to is on his way over. You ever had this, like the party's ending, dancing stop, it's time to go, and then the Buddha at the party says, no, don't go, because Manjushri is coming, and you'll really want to meet Manjushri. And then, you know, in your sobriety, you say, okay, I'll stay a little longer. And for those of you who know Manjushri, Manjushri is depicted as a, a kind of like a Kuan Yin figure like this, but leaning over sideways with a sword and this is Manjushri's um, tool which is a sword of love it's the same sword that Patanjali has Um, this sword of love that's so sharp that it can cut through things that are not real um, with compassion has anyone ever had to use this sword before Mm -hmm. it's like you have to cut someone off or cut off a habit Um, but it's so sharp. It's better than a Japanese knife, you know. 
You just It can cut through anything, but it cuts out of love. So when you use this sword, its intention is always love. It can't be used to, for hate. And um, anyway, so Manjushri arrives on the scene, and he emerges from the sea, and he pays his respects to the two Buddhas, so Shakyamuni and the other Buddha, sitting together in the stupa. He, pay, uh, he pays his respects, and then Manjushri asks him to wait a minute um, because they want to have a conversation with him. And um, uh, I don't want to go on too many tangents because I want to get through the story, but it's important to understand Manjushri coming from the sea because um, the kingdom of the sea is where the Heart Sutra is kept. And it said that the Heart Sutra, and, and a lot of the sutras on emptiness all come from underneath the ocean, from the Naga world. So Naga is a serpent. And interestingly, so in China, when these teachings go to China, in China they don't have an imagination of serpents. They have dragons. So they just reinterpreted all the Naga teachings. Like whenever there's a serpent in China, they just become a dragon. So that's where the dragon... So sometimes this is like the serpent girl, sometimes it's the dragon girl. Depends if it's Sanskrit or Chinese. And um, anyway, so it's it's said that all the holiest texts on emptiness are kept uh, at the bottom of the ocean. And different people, and their names always become Naga something, bring those texts up. So the Madhyamaka comes from Nagarjuna. Uh, who apparently found it at the bottom of the ocean, like some kind of, you know, shipwreck or something. Um, So, accumulated wisdom, this is the person sitting uh, beside the Buddha, asks Manjushri if he's ever encountered anyone anywhere in his vast travels under the sea who had followed the Dharma Flower Sutra so well that they became a Buddha really quickly. I like this. Have you ever had this question? Like, because we've been learning through the whole text how it's all gradual, gradual training, right? Kind of undoing this idea of having a mystical experience and waking up. So here he finally gets his question. In your travels under the sea, meaning, you know, seeing countless thousands and millions of uh, nayutas of bodhisattvas, have you ever met somebody who had an awakening really quickly? And this is, I think, a secret question we all want to have. Like, am I just going to sit and one day it's just going to be really fast and I'm going to have an awakening? Um, Manjushri replies, yes. There is the daughter of the dragon king, Sagara. She's just eight years old. She's wise. She has sharp faculties, in other words, good tools, and is well acquainted with the abilities and actions of all living beings. In other words, she has skillful means. She can relate to all kinds of living beings. Uh, She has mastered incantations. She's been able to receive and embrace the profound inner treasures preached by the Buddhas, has entered deeply into meditation, and has an understanding of how life works. Within one second, she aspired to awakening, and at the age of eight years old, woke up and never had any backsliding. Backsliding is a term from Theravada Buddhism, which is like, when you get really good at meditation, if your ethics are not good, you get backsliding. So it's like you can get really concentrated, but if you're not honest, or you're stealing something, or you've been lying, you can't hold your concentration states, and you backslide. You know, This eight-year-old girl is such a good practitioner of the way, 
that she has no backsliding. It's kind of nice. Um, her eloquence knows no bounds, and she has compassion for all living beings as if they were her own children. She's eight years old. It's so good. <laughs> She's full of blessings, and thoughts in her mind, and even the ones that come from her mouth, are subtle and great. She is compassionate, kind, and gentle, and so she was able to attain instant awakening. Accumulated wisdom recalls that Shakyamuni Buddha had devoted enormous time and effort to achieving awakening, and he expressed doubt that this girl could do so in one moment. I mean, the Buddha had to sit under this tree for like thousands of years, and you and I, we have to come here, we have to bow, we have to go on retreat, we have to sit in the snow, do walking meditation, you know, over and over again. It's so much work. And this girl, she was just eight, and she just could, you know, wake up like this. And so, you know, accumulated wisdom is doubting this, saying, but the Buddha had to work so hard. Even before he finished saying this, the girl herself appeared. So she shows up out of the water. (laughs) Isn't this good? You doubt someone's ability, and then suddenly they show up. (laughs) It's like when you're talking about someone behind their back, and they walk into the room before you realize um, the girl herself appears and went, goes over to Shakyamuni and bows deeply before him, expressing the thought that only he could know whether or not she's qualified to attain awakening because only the Buddha knows that she has truly heard the Dhamma. Shariputra then speaks to the girl, expressing conventional belief. Okay, so unfortunately this is one of these misogynist parts of the text. So just, you know, hold on really tight. (laughs) You think that in no time at all you will attain the unexcelled way? That is hard to believe. Why? Because the body of a woman is filthy and impure and not a vessel for the Dharma. How could you attain unexcelled awakening? The Buddhist way is long and extensive. Only after thousands and millions of eons of hardship accumulating good works and carrying out all the practices can it be reached. She could never become a Brahma king, an Indra, or a Mara king, let alone a holy wheel-rolling king. Doesn't, sound, doesn't they sound like, like, like a roller derby team or something? <laughs> you know. um, since they all have male bodies, how could you possibly expect to become awakening in a woman's body? So, just... Thought I'd mention that part. You just want to skip over these parts, you know. Um, Then, the girl takes a jewel and offers it to the Buddha, who accepts it immediately, and then she turns to Shariputra and accumulated wisdom and asks, did the Buddha just accept this gem quickly? Didn't think about it, right? She hands the Buddha a jewel, he accepts it. And she looks at them. She's eight years old. These are like the major Buddha figures. It says, did he just accept this quickly? Most quickly, they said. And she said, now use your superpowers and watch me become a Buddha even more quickly than that. Then the whole congregation saw her suddenly change into a man, carry out compassion for all living beings, and then have a complete awakening, and then the flowers start falling, and it's like a wedding party. Um, 
And then she gains the 32 marks of a Buddha. So, this is really kind of a twisted ending. So, you know, some of you who don't know all the history, you can't go from a woman to a rebirth as a Buddha. You have to somehow get into a man body, and then you can be reborn. So, um, this is what we're working on here, to get our man bodies really, really uh, skilled. Um, did you get the story? Because I want to offer some commentary on the, on the story. Any questions about the story? It's kind of hard to picture this whole thing going on, but it's good for you. Um, let me read that one section from a different translation. Bodhisattva wisdom accumulated said, When I observe Shakyamuni Buddha, I see for immeasurable kalpas he carried out harsh and difficult practices, piling up virtue, seeking the way of the Bodhisattva without resting. And I observe that through the thousand million fold world, there is not a single spot, tiny as a mustard seed, where the Bodhisattva failed to sacrifice body and life for the sake of living beings. Only after the Buddha did that was he able to complete the Buddha way. I can't believe this girl, in the space of an instant, actually achieved perfect enlightenment. When I first read this, I thought this was one of the most beautiful things I've ever read in all of Buddhism. This idea that the Buddha actually touched every single place in the universe, uh, the size of a mustard seed. So all of these people who go to Bodh Gaya to go see the tree under which the Buddha sat actually shouldn't have to create such a large carbon footprint if they can just realize that the place where they're sitting is actually the same place where the Buddha woke up. Not only that, you don't even have to have the Buddha's life. You can just have your life, like the eight-year-old girl has her life, and you can wake up right here. In fact, um, there's no place that isn't that place. There is no place in reality that isn't uh, that place where the Buddha woke up. And I love this idea because last chapter it was about time and also about persons, people who uh, we need to see as Buddhas. And this time it's about space, that there is no space in your life that cannot be awakened. And that where you are, wherever you are, you can be awake in that experience. And maybe that's the lesson that we all need to learn over and over again. And there is a koan that comes out of this story, some of you might know it, where Zhao Zhu uh, wants to go on pilgrimage because he wants to be able to test his practice. This is something people did a lot. They'd practice for 30 or 40 years, then they'd just leave, and they would just go walking for the rest of their life and get old and write good poems. And um, maybe we should all try this. You know? We'll put 30 years into this, and then we'll just go walking. Or scuba diving. And, um, and Zhao Zhu, when he sets off on pilgrimage, he says, uh, if there's a man who's 80 years old that I uh, can teach, even though he's elderly, I'll make an effort to try and reach him. And if there is a girl who is 8 years old that can teach me, then I'll sit down at her feet and I'll learn from her. And I... Uh, I think if you combine that with this idea that there is no place the Buddha has not taught, 
that even you are so learned that you can walk out into the world and see an eight-year-old girl who's skilled at something that you're not skilled at, that you'll sit down at her feet and you'll learn from her. It's kind of nice, isn't it? Image. Um, so some of the lessons. Uh, first, uh, there, there's no one, uh, there's nowhere rather that the Buddha has not practiced, uh, even in the depths of the ocean. The Buddha has practiced everywhere. In other words, you can find awakening everywhere. Everywhere. Uh, also, that there is nobody who cannot be enlightened. So you need to really meditate. If there are people that you imagine that could never get enlightened, like mayors or something, you know, (laughs) that they too can also be enlightened. And how do they get enlightened? Through the way that you perceive them. How do you get enlightened? You get enlightened by being able to see them as on their way to awakening. Um... That even though the Lotus Sutra has uh, stressed gradual awakening, in this chapter we realize you can also have instantaneous awakening. These are all the kind of interesting kind of levels of reading this story. Um, another one that I was thinking of is, you know, this is not a traditional interpretation, but I was thinking about this a lot, is that the story we always have in these traditions, whether it's Hindu or Buddhist, is that it's always the man that leaves home. But this time it's a girl that leaves home. A girl leaves home and goes to the bottom of the ocean to get teachings. And so it's not very often that it's a female, and it's also not very often uh, that it works. Right? Usually the female leaves home and she's shunned or whatever, and you know they have the whole caste thing superimposed on them. So this girl is really unconventional. And I think one of the themes here is that you too can be unconventional. But how the Lotus Sutra thinks about being unconventional is you're not being unconventional for the sake of being eccentric. You're being unconventional to serve other beings. And I think sometimes we think, oh, you know, I'm just going to, you know, and we do this unconsciously, I think, you know, live unconventionally. Um, And actually, um, it's kind of self-serving. So the idea is is that, you know, you're motivated here to live in an unconventional way in order to serve other beings. Um, you can only watch this little girl become a Buddha if you have superpowers. And the superpowers is being able to see anyone, even an eight-year-old girl, as a Buddha. Um, and lastly, I would say that, you know, another you know kind of theme here is that you can use your imagination uh, to see deeper than ever before. And maybe Buddha nature, instead of thinking about this as some like exploding compassion that will turn you into a Dalai Lama instantly in the middle of a moment of anger, instead we can see that maybe Buddha nature is just your capacity for imagination. To have an imagination that can stretch around and behind anything in order to see that level of interbeing that generates compassion spontaneously. So then this girl becomes a um, Buddha. And how do you know she's a Buddha? She has the 32 signs of a Buddha. 
And I just thought for fun, because this shows up so much in Lotus Sutra, I would just read you what the 32 signs are. So that if you meet someone and you are not sure if they're really a Buddha, you can just look for the 32 characteristics. Um, there are also 80 minor characteristics, but I'm just going to read the 32. So you can just conjure up in your imagination someone you know who you might, are you guessing maybe they're a Buddha. Maybe they're in this room, you know, and you've never really checked. So here's how you check. So number one, uh, the foot should be a level sole. Um, so that the soul spreads the weight of the body completely evenly. There's no arch. And the soul just spreads out like a web every time the Buddha makes a step. Uh, and there's a little footnote, um, so that nobody would ever be wearing out their shoes. <laughs> I don't know. So, um, then if you, this is number two, if you study the, the sole of the foot and you look closely, there will be an, a 1,000-spoked wheel mark on each sole. So a, a, a wheel, which is the wheel of the Dharma, that's turning. And it has a 1,000 spokes. Um, and these hands would make the person's hands and feet infinitely flexible. So each spoke is like a fold, and they can spread out. And then their feet and their, also their hands can be so flexible that they can serve others in infinite ways. So you should look for this. Um, uh, projecting heels. The heels are not round in shape, but they're oval. So they give uh, extra bounce and leverage to strengthen the body every time they, you walk. Um, uh, number four, really big fingers. So big that all the fingers are the same length. <laughs> Um, and they're very strong. Five, the hands and feet are soft skin. That to mean that means that um, probably the person's done a lot of meditation practice. You know, people who are meditators, they're really soft. Like you can tell they've never ever done any work. <laughs> you know, it's like whenever you meet monks, you know, especially in Asian traditions, and you look at their hands, and they're so soft. It looks like they've never dug a hole or lifted anything. You know. Um, Number six, uh, net-like long lines on palms. It's the same as on the feet. Uh, seven, high-raised ankles. Exceptional strength and agility in the calves. Eight, very tight calf muscles like an antelope. <laughs> Not flaccid like those of a buffalo. <laughs> Number nine, uh, they can stand perfectly upright or they can bend over without bending the knees. This is an ideal person, not like Asians who have a long body and short legs. Okay. Uh, this was written in Asians. Um, uh, the penis is concealed by a sheath. <laughs> so basically, you know, if it's, a woman, then you should like just check to under the sheet to see. Uh, so apparently, Thai Airlines now is like hiring all transgendered people to be stewards on their or flight attendants. Yeah, I was just reading about that. Why? I don't know. Just because they're Buddhas. Right. Yeah. I, I don't know. Um, 
11, bright colored complexion. 12, skin so fine that no dust can attach to it. 13, the body hair is separate in each pore. Uh, Not like some, this is the footnote, not like some people who have whole tufts of hair coming out from one pore. (laughs) 14, all the hair curls clockwise. 15, upright stance, very good balance. 16, um, it's basically just talking about how the spine is naturally curved. 17, the chest looks like a lion with good breathing. 18, the flesh on the back is spread and doesn't look like fish bones. Uh, 19, equal distance from hand to hand and head to toe. 20, the neck is round and smooth. 21, very sensitive taste buds. Allows one to pick up nutrients from the poorest of foods, surviving for up to 49 days on seven lumps of rice. You could do a test. (laughs) 22, lion-like jaw to accommodate the 40 teeth. 23, 40 teeth. (laughs) 24, evenly spaced teeth. 25, gapless teeth. 26, crystal canine teeth. 27, large lung tongue, enough to cover his whole face and long enough to lick ears. This contributes to the melodious sound of the Buddha and his exceptional taste buds. (laughs) 29, Uh, bluish black eyes, 30, eyes as innocent as a calf. (laughs) 31, white cotton, soft, wisp of hair in center of brow. 32, brow and face, especially the join between the two, are excellent and smooth. Okay, so do you, so anybody want to come up? <laughs> so if there's such a list of attributes, how can you simultaneously see a Buddha, Buddha in, in anyone? Yeah, yeah. You know, and I hope what you're reading in the sutra is like, just at every turn is a contradiction. Mm-hmm. At every turn there's a contradiction. And at the same time, if you look closely at this level of your body you can see all these webs. Just like you can see the stupa in this room. You can look around this room and say, oh, I don't see the stupa, I'm just miserable, and like I just want to feel better, I'm so depressed, and why would I ever help anyone else? I'm just trying to get by, you know. Or you can use your imagination to see, oh, other people are also getting by. And although this seems fun, actually my life is just like a funeral. In the same way, it's also like a carnival. Uh, Everything that is coming that gives me joy is also passing away. And so in order to really be here, I also have to be able to mourn the present moment as it's occurring. And then I can see each moment as a funeral, uh, which is why there is this stupa hanging over my head. Um, But I can't see the stupa when I'm self-centered. I can only see it when I see someone else as a Buddha. Just like you could argue that there is a woman, if anybody can become a Buddha, a woman can become a Buddha, then this should really inspire us. 
to practice because you, a lowly woman, can become a great Buddha. And you didn't even realize it. And so you can see here how this is kind of playing with the gender uh, assumptions in the culture at the time. And you can read it in two different ways. You can say, oh my God, how could you say this is misogynist? Or you can say, wow, this is a very clever uh, reimagination um, um, for women of what's possible in 406 AD in China. So if you really know that history of uh, India, Afghanistan, Sri Lanka, China at that time, to start talking about an eight-year-old girl as being a fully enlightened Buddha is a pretty radical thing that maybe we forget from here. And it's written in a way where it's kind of hard to you know, really, really appreciate. Yeah. I mean, it's so troubling. Like, she's, still, she's not a woman that she becomes enlightened, but she's a man. Yeah, she has to become a man first. So Skillful it's, means. It's almost like, I mean, you could pull it so far in either direction. Still, I yeah. mean, it's not embracing anything womanly or, or, or like the abject. Or yeah. Yeah, and then out of this, what starts happening is all of the deities, as soon as you hit Lotus Sutra time, they go from men, which they all were in India, uh, to becoming half men, half women, and then mostly women. So Kuan Yin, for example. Or if you look at the Buddha, when you walk in here, I don't know if some of you see the big stone Buddha, when you walk in in the foyer, uh, it's man and woman, male and female. And so this is one of the things that begins to, to change. Yeah? I'm just getting a real sense of humility from this story, the whole idea that as soon as you think that you've figured it out, you realize there's nothing to be figured out. Yeah. yeah. But this whole concept that the, the learned man has spent all of his time working at it, working at it, working at it. Yeah. Thinking that he knows the answer and how yeah. to get there. And then yeah. Boom, Eight-year-old girl. Yeah. Yeah. A, a real true lesson of humility. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, isn't it like this for all of us in meditation practice? Like, I think in meditation practice, the deep lesson that we're all learning every time we sit down is how uh, humble we need to be in order to really be able to enter our lives honestly and fiercely, you know, because we're defending ourselves against ourselves all the time. So what you're saying is true intrapsychically also. <clears throat> and the simplicity of it, that it's not about trying so hard. Yeah. That in fact this eight-year-old girl just is who she is, yeah. and there she is. Yeah. Yeah. And at the same time, you know, universally in world mythology, um, going under the ocean or going down into Hades, or the dark night of the soul, going underwater. Carl Jung liked to think of this in dreaming. Whenever you have a dream of going underwater, um, it's going into the unconscious. You know? It's easy to map the world up here. But actually, when you think about water uh, 2,500 years ago, it was like nobody went down there. You, know, you don't know what's in there. And uh, to think about having an instant awakening 
And yet, it's an instant awakening first by going down, really deep into your depression, right? really deep into your body, really deep into that place where, you can't, where you're blind. Um, then you can have instant awakening. So in a way, it is a story about instant awakening, and it's also not. Because the instant awakening happened uh, down at the bottom of the ocean. And I don't know how many of us really want to go down there. And, you know, going down there is what makes us human. Maybe we can think of yoga as just like long love affair with human life. Every aspect of human life. And part of it is like deep down under the under the ocean. Mike, did you have your your hand up? Yeah, the, the story, the, the moment where um, the girl gives the Buddha the jewel, mm-hmm. um, for me, I can really hear in that story an echo of the, of the other story that we just heard about the jewel. Yeah. And in some funny way, she converts the Buddha into that lost, wandering traveler. Hmm. The one who was so poor, who traveled yep. all that time, and needed that friend that's, that, at the end of that hard road to say, oh, but you have the jewel already. Here yeah. it is. Yeah. It's like she's giving him back something that he already had. Uh-huh. Um, that's such a beautiful yeah. sort of reversal. Yeah. She turns the Buddha into the, the drunk guy at the end of the party. <laughs> and into the Buddha at the same time. Yeah. yeah. And likewise, she's also saying to everybody around the Buddha, uh, watch me do this. But you can only see me do it if um, you're a Buddha. Yeah. So, um, yeah, what it would have been like if you were at the party and you watched that jewel gets slipped into that man's coat, then you would become a Buddha. <laughs> yeah? I, I, I saw the same thing, but I saw how quickly Buddha took the jewel and how quickly he reached, she reached in life. Uh-huh. It's always been there, so you can quickly just accept the jewel and, and awake, in, in a way. Yeah. So I, I saw this as a kind of analogy of what happened. Uh It's always in front of her, she just was able to quickly pick it up. Yeah. 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 There's something that that kind of rings for me that keeps on coming back to me is that how how she trusts so much that he will just accept it. Mm -hmm. And how, you know, she was just so quick to accept the role as well. Mm-hmm. And I, I can't really pinpoint it exactly, but also something about really trusting that that other, other person is going to like take on the gift, take on the truth, right? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Somebody else. I think um, I think it was good to have. I liked how you shared a little bit of the history behind uh, the gender, um, the gender issue back when yep. this was like applied. Mm-hmm. I feel like 
I think that's the thing that I was struggling with is a, a lack of a like a background to be able to contextualize this yeah. and also like a lack of critical thinking in terms of like I guess when like everyone can wake up like everyone has that opportunity but we have a, such a greater sense of privilege to be able to even talk about this mm -hmm. and so I get sometimes like oh but there are people who like are every day just thinking about surviving and don't have the privilege like we do to have this conversation and and I'm always trying to reconcile that. So. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So, anyway, comments. <laughs> yeah, I mean, think about it just in terms of you know most of you today practice yoga postures. Mm -hmm. So Macharya taught yoga in this lineage to women. Uh, 40 years ago? So, um, that was like a really radical thing to do, to teach yoga to householders and to women. Uh, that was not half a century ago. <laughs> you know, that's pretty huge. Or that we can all be here together and that the women who are in the room are literate. So, I mean, maybe that's not so radical in the world that we live in now. Mm -hmm. um, but the world that these teachings come from, mm -hmm. that's really radical. Mm -hmm. And actually, you know, I didn't talk about this, but historically, um, this chapter in the Lotus Sutra inspired some sects of the uh, Tendai school that come after, like as the Tendai school um, uh, flourishes in China, they start building <coughs> temples and the deity that they put in the temple is a Kuan Yin, this Kuan Yin, um, with the the girl, uh, the Saga uh, girl beside beside her. So you have a um, uh, these two women in the center of the temple, uh, rather than this uh, male Buddha sitting there. It's kind of a radical radical thing to to think about. And not only that, if you think of Manjushri as a female, that this is not a female who's just like, you know, breastfeeding and, you know, blowing kisses. But this is a, a deity who has a sword, who's doing her work of compassion with, uh, with a, a sense of kind of like fierce and um, sharp skill. Okay, so can we do one little exercise before we finish? Um, it's a nice light in here, isn't it? It's beautiful. Um, okay, so, you know, one of the main themes, obviously, aside from the fact that a girl can get enlightened once she gets into a man body, I just love to repeat that, you know, um, <laughs> is um, also, like you were just saying, how fast it happens. Do you see how quickly that jewel gets passed? Um, so I was wondering if maybe you could just find a partner. Maybe a group of three would be nice. And if you could just share with them a moment in your life where you had an awakening experience that was really fast. Anything. It, sometimes, sometimes the experience could be traumatic. You see someone get shot. Um, you have a realization by watching a scene on a television. 
um, you fall. Um, I don't know what it is. It's going to be unique to all of you. But something in your experience that woke you up, that was immediate, really, really fast, where it's like it wasn't that part of you that's like thinking through it or gradual, just a moment where suddenly you realized uh, something that woke you up. Um, does this make sense? Is that really fast, though, then? Because it's like you're, you're having little moments of inspiration. Yeah. Yeah. So if you have lots of those, and that's not really fast, they're just, they come in little spurts. Well, you could argue that it wasn't really fast for this little girl either. She somehow made it down to the bottom of the ocean. But she's saying that enlightenment can happen in one kshana. Just pass them on a jewel. Here, let's try it. Um, here. Watch, I'm going to pass this to Elaine. Oh, use your superpowers. <laughs> That's how fast it can happen. Where's my man body? <laughs> your loincloth? You have to look behind your loincloth. Okay, so I just want you to, maybe a group of three, and just, just go through and just, just share, like, was there a time in your life where you just had a kind of, not an epiphany necessarily, but like the felt experience of interconnectedness, of interbeing, of like dropping out of your, yourself? Fast. Okay? So uh, find, find two friends. <laughs> <laughs>